get notifications, and stay updated every time I post a challenge podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Thank you all, and hope you enjoy. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Mike Lewis Podcast. This is episode number 72, and if you're looking on your screen right now, folks, I got a guest who hasn't been in the fold since Rivals, but we're bringing him back here to kind of pick his brain, Mr. Adam King. What's going on, man? Hey, Mike. Thanks uh, Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. Really excited. <laughs> I'm just glad we're off on a uh, good foot. I know that you're a Steeler fan, uh, so uh, we're... If I'm if I'm gonna bring up some past times, I mean I got some gripes with you guys a little bit over uh, past Super Bowl that we played each other in, but you know it's what it is. Yeah, I I remember watching. I remember the the end around pass from uh, Antoine Randall L to uh, to Heinz Ward. That's the one, and uh, and the pat the no no call pass interference in the end zone. That my friends were screaming about. So yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. You have to be willing to give a little. I feel like though, in terms of the officiating of that game, no. Well, it's a Super Bowl, right? If you can't let them play in the Super Bowl, the last thing you want to want to, you know, I feel like in the in the regular season there are plays that you kind of get the feel for, and so you kind of know what what the officials are going to let you play, and then every season is defined by that, and you know. The worst thing that can happen for an official is for them to call your number or to be to be recognized in any way. Like if you're doing your job as an official, they should not know who you are. So I think the no call is a safe call because if you throw a flag and it's, it's a phantom call, you're not, you're never going to live that down. So yeah, yeah I I, I want to ask you though quickly since we're on the topic of the Steelers, how was uh what was your feelings on Juju Smith-Schuster and uh, Claypool with the whole uh, kind of TikTok movement towards the end of last season? Was that something that um, bothered you as a fan to see that kind of pick up steam and serve as a distraction, or do you not see it as that big of a deal? Big time distraction, in my opinion. Now, granted, again, I'm just coming in, coming at it as a fan, um, and I have my own relationship with social media and with media in general, um, but... I, when I was watching it, I was cringing because I thought, you know, I get it. This is where they are now. And, you know, Juju's only 22, I think, or 23 years old. Um, and the guys around him, a lot of them are, are similar in age. So they express themselves through TikTok and social media. And that's kind of how they, they emote. So I understand why the desire is there. But from, uh, from, a, someone who's, from a consumption perspective, it detracts from what you're trying to do, and it offers – it creates fodder for the other team to play against you. Football is an emotional game, right? You're not playing every day like baseball. It's not a marathon. You're playing once a week for a 60-minute game, which only takes about two and a half hours, and it's it's like Blitzkrieg, right? It's all – it's everything you've got for those two and a half, three hours. And when you give another team an emotional lift by doing things like that, it does – I think it does affect the game, and I, and I think it does detract from what you're trying to do. If you can humble yourself and play the game from within, it, it, you'll be a better team as a whole. And so I don't think Juju's a bad guy. I, didn't, I don't think he did it to intentionally d- distract the team. I think he was doing it from a place of, I want to build my brand. Um, football, you know, and then good for them that they're thinking proactively about what their brand is like, how to spend their money, what they should do after football's over, et cetera. Um, but in that moment when, when it was happening, I felt like, it was detracting from the game. Um, it was disrespectful to the other team. Dancing on the other team's logo, no matter how you look at it, is going to be viewed as disrespect. Hell, if they were dis- if they were dancing on the Steelers logo, we would feel disrespected. So um, I think I don't think it came from a bad place, but I think the act itself did detract from the game, and I think it did have an effect on their play. 
for me at least, like my stance on it is um, kind of like the cardinal sin that I feel like all um, or most coaches explain to their players is it's the term called bulletin board material. It's right. kind of like if right. someone does something, you kind of like hang it up on a board, maybe not literally or maybe sometimes literally, who knows, depending on uh, your coaching. But and then that's kind of serves as like your motivation um, and kind of like that, like psychological um, edge to kind of like go out there and use that. But um, for me, I think like, yeah, you, you just kind of got to stay away from like dancing on teams logos because you don't want to give any opponent the psychological um, kind of like drive. You want to like keep the playing field like neutral, you know, you want to just like go out there and be, you don't the term like kind of like silent assassin, right? Like you don't want to talk before you actually go out there and play. You just kind of want to do like what you're out there doing planning on doing which is obviously going out and playing the game but for me after he um when it really started picking up uh buzz first after the bills game what kind of annoyed me was that he said oh i'm gonna keep dancing because they were playing the Bengals next who was like three ten and one at the time so it's kind of like eh, that's a little weak man like you're playing yeah. the Bengals, and then it still came back to like kind of like rear its ugly head a little bit so i feel like if he was hypothetically playing like, I don't know, Kansas City next and he made that statement about like, oh, I'm going to keep dancing, then maybe, I mean, I still wouldn't suggest doing it, but it would have held a little more weight, you know? Well, people have to remember, I mean, they lost like six out of the last seven games or something crazy. I mean, they started 11 and up, right? So it's kind of the tale of two seasons. You know, he's dancing throughout the, throughout the backstretch of that season. The Steelers were terrible. They weren't even just average. They were terrible. Um I mean, they got smoked in the playoff game to the Browns. It was like it was embarrassing, and so you know, to to not kind of change things toward the end, you can't rest your rest you know on your laurels when you haven't won a decent game in over a month and a half, right? I think I think it, so. That also bothered me as well. It's like oh, I'm going to keep dancing, or I'm going to keep doing this behavior that that we think is well, it's not working. It hasn't worked, and all of the hype surrounding your 11 and 0 start was all but obliterated by the time, you know, you got to the 16th and 17th week of the season. So it, it rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, I love Juju as a player. I hope he keeps that, that young energy, that, that feistiness, but I think that behavior in and of itself was misplaced. Now uh, we can kind of dance off that now and uh, go now into what I would always ask my guests in the beginning of this is kind of like what this uh, kind of crazy past year and adjustment period has been like for them. What's uh, what's this kind of, I would say 2020, but it's basically now like just, I, I'm just going to preface and say that just the pandemic, what has it kind of been like for you? Yeah, you know, uh, it's obviously different for everybody. My situation was, uh, for those who don't know, like I um, or know me outside of the challenge or, or know me only inside of the challenge. I... Um, I grew up in entertainment. You know, when I left school, I came back. I, I raised in L.A., went to college, came back, worked in L.A. my whole life, pretty much. I traveled a lot, but L.A. has always been my home base. And um, so I was always go, 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 go. Uh, in the seven years before, from up, leading up to 2020, or, or the pandemic, I should just say, uh, I worked for an entertainment marketing firm, and I was uh, Sean Combs' personal assistant, P. Diddy. And in that world, I was working crazy hours. Anyway, seven hours a day, oftentimes, 90 to 100 hours a week. So there was no break, right? So I'm sitting there, uh, and all this is popping off. I had resigned. I had taken a, a different job in Santa Monica because I wanted to work on all my own personal projects. 
And so when the pandemic hit for me, it was really a, a, a way to just kind of slow down. Um, I looked at it at a what I looked at it as a way, or as the universe's way of telling me, "Hey, you've been going too fast. Everybody's been going too fast, right? You have your phone on you twenty four seven. You're checking everything all the time. People are texting you at four in the morning or four p.m. We're all on social media all the. T- it's just, and people are stressed out. And have we've lost sense and sight of what really makes us happy? So, I saw it as a sign to, to slow down, and it was really, really healthy for me in the long run, very unhealthy in the short run. So in, in, the, in the short run, um, it was me kind of closing off. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of emotional breakdowns. There was um, kind of confusion on my end about what my next steps would be. Um, I've always wanted to have, I've always had these projects on the back burner that I've never really initiated because I was too busy working for somebody else. You know, I was too busy trying to get projects for Spotify, for Samsung, and for this marketing firm off the ground, and all these other jobs I've had, um, and I never took any time for me. So 2020, I really just took a huge step back and said, okay, what do you really want? Like, life is what happens while you're making other plans, right? So what do you really want to do? And out of that came the sense, this new sense of who I am and what I'm trying to accomplish in life, and so I've got those projects going now. So now I've got a, a bunch of irons in the fire. I've got, um, you know, I've never been a huge social media guy. So I'm trying to branch out more of that. I'm on, on my uh, Instagram is Kingro at, uh, at Kingromac, K-I-N-G-R-O-M-A-C. So I'm going to start announcing uh, my projects on my on my Instagram as well as my Twitter, which is Adam King MTV. And those are going to start in the next couple of weeks. Now, as I move forward through 2021, obviously everybody, there's going to be a sense of normalcy that has to come back into place, right? Some kind of normalcy, whether there's a new normal or revert to the old stuff will be seen. But for me, it's going to be very, very positive in the sense that um, all of the old things that I was putting on the back burner that I didn't want to do because I was like, well, I'll get to those eventually. I'll get to those eventually. There is no more eventually. It's like, let's do these now. You know, it's like shit or get off the pot. Um, I feel like, you know, I told especially when I was doing challenges, right? Because, I, you know, I would work, I worked for CAA for a couple of years, then do a challenge. Then I would work for a casting director or work on movies or work on television shows like Undercover Boss and the Travel Channel for Lifetime and then go do a challenge. So I was bouncing around a lot. And in that framework, there really wasn't any time for me because I was either on a tele- on a show or doing appearances or then working again for 60 or 70 hours a week for somebody else and working weekends, etc. So finally taking the time to step back and do what I w- always wanted to do, which is kind of create my own content and write and, and also be a part of other people's projects in a, in a production capacity, in a producing capacity. So I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm having a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, you know, what, what the future holds. Um, and, you know, and obviously there's going to be a lot of monkey wrenches thrown into the works and curveballs thrown in my direction, but uh, I'm excited for it. You know, it, it's scary because anytime you let go of what you're used to, um, there's a lot of people changing careers right now. Uh, not just because of the pandemic. I think the way we structure our lives, there are a lot of people that will have one career in their 20s and or 30s and then transition out later. Things happen so quickly right now. Um, you know, you just look at the look at the music industry. My father, you know, I, I remember when Spotify was coming around and I was like, look, this is going to be huge. You just have to accept it. People are no longer going to buy albums in stores. It's going to be a thing. And, uh, you know, it rocked the music industry 
for about 18 months, two years or whatever, until they adjusted and realized, okay, the money is there. People will pay for music. Uh, we just have to change the way we address it. Uh, and it's painful, but every industry is going to have to go through it. And so you just got to be there and uh, embrace it and, and do the best you can with it. And that's, that's what I'm about to do. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, like, um, I think you mentioned about um, going on challenges, like, in the midst of that. Like, did that kind of, like, was that kind of hard to manage, like, schedule-wise um, with what you were doing and then having to go, uh, obviously, compete on challenges? Like, how did, that, how did you, like, manage uh, around that? Yeah, it's difficult. If anybody's out there that wants to do it, I would say the best way to do it um, is to, well, it exists now. You like the gig economy and have your own side job because you have to leave for six to eight weeks at a time. Now, the structure is different moving forward. There's one out right now. The challenge, they're filming it a little differently. But ultimately, you have to take a huge chunk out of, out of, your, out of your year to do it. And regular, quote-unquote, regular jobs won't allow you the time uh, or just mental space to do that. So you really have to have a flexible situation professionally to do it. And I was lucky in that, um, you know, and I'm, when you're working on a TV show or, or a, pro a production of any sort, you usually film for six months or eight months or a year or whatever it is, and then you have a break, and then you hop on another show. So early on, that's what happened. Uh, my first job was with Fox, and then I ended up uh, becoming an associate producer on a TV show, and the TV show ended... And right then is when they called me for Real World. So I was able to just drop everything and go to Paris for five months to film the Real World. And then that turned into a whole whirlwind. But when I, after about two years of that, I had to like, take a step back and say, okay, let's get back to work doing something productive. Because I was, you know, th that life, you're doing appearances. I mean, I'm sure a lot of your people on, the, on your show have told you that we, like, go and drink for a living, right? We show up at a bar. And... And it was very empty for me because you don't really have any talent, per se, which is fine. You know, there's a whole generation of people with, who have no talent, right? Um, they're, they're great business people. I would never knock the Kardashians or any of those people for what they've done. I mean, those people grew up in the same world. I grew up in Beverly Hills. They grew up in the same world I did, and I think they're brilliant business people. But they don't really – they don't write. They don't direct. They don't produce. They don't sing. They don't dance. None of that. None of what we would typically consider talent. There's a new type of talent, and it's basically just branding. So – to me, it felt kind of weird just to be in a place where they're paying you just to be there. And after a while, it gets to you, right? Like you're drinking every night in bars and your, your, your job is just to kind of be this crazy person in a, in, a, in a wild and young setting. I remember when I, I was doing spring break, I turned 30 and I was doing spring break. And I was looking around, I was like, mm, this isn't right. <laughs> <laughs> At a certain point, you've got to really check yourself and say, okay. And you know, I have people on both sides of it. Some were saying, yeah, you're right. Maybe you should go back and show, you know, you've written some great things. Like, why don't you go back into uh, helping produce TV, et cetera, or working you know, legitimately in some capacity. And then other people were like, hell, you know, you don't, you don't uh, stop playing because you get old. You get old because you stop playing. So just do it as long as you can. So I had people in both ears saying that stuff. And uh, I, I just had to follow my heart and say, okay, look, I just gotta—I have to do something that I feel proud of, that I feel content with doing. And you can only drink in bars for so long before you start to feel like complete waste of space. And so, um, you know, I stepped away from it for a while. Um, and I've always felt like I timed everything appropriately. Um, I miss it. I still, I still think it's a great experience. It's kind of like summer camp going on the challenges. Yeah. I would never knock them. There's so much fun to be there, to be the guy. I mean, 
uh, I'm lucky I got to do them. Um, and it's sad not to do them. And, and there is a bit of jealousy when you watch them and other people are doing them. But there is also a lot of tension and a lot of angst that exists when you're filming them um, that doesn't really resonate uh, when you're sitting in a, in a comfortable setting on your couch watching it. You know, when you're just watching it, you can, like, judge accordingly and, and make fun of people and pick apart the, the, the characters and the story. It's not the same as having as being there with the cameras on you. And one of the things I always got kind of frustrated with was when people would say that, oh, I forget the cameras are there. Because I, I call bullshit on that. Like, there's... The cameras are in your face all the time. And they've changed the way they film it now because years ago when we started, they would film it and there was a, what was called the fourth wall. So anyone in production knows that the fourth wall is the camera and you're not allowed to look at the camera or talk to the camera. You have to pretend in the sense that they're not there and it's called the fourth wall. Well, now they shoot it very differently. Um, now there's, there's kind of a relationship with the camera where people are allowed to look at the camera. And uh, you'll see it a lot. Uh, it kind of was brought in, uh, in my opinion, in real TV, what I call real TV, like The Office, right? If you watch The Office, you'll see Jim or Pam or any of the other characters will look at the camera and give the camera a look or like play to the camera. And so I think that kind of normalized it for the audience to accept the fact that the cameras were actually a person, not just kind of a fly on the wall. And uh, as a result, it kind of bled through and, and permeated through TV culture. Now it exists uh, on the challenges and in, in that space. Which I'm, you know, I think it's fine. I think it's great. <laughs> no, I hear what you're saying. I think I definitely think, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with like current challenges and whatnot, but I definitely feel like in this newer uh, day and age of uh, the challenge that we're currently living in, it seems like a lot of the times uh, some of these newer cats are kind of doing stuff for the camera because they know it's there more so than uh, letting things organically play out. And I think that that's been under the uh, microscope a little bit from uh, some of the fans in terms of scrutiny. Yeah, well, it's been, it's been going on for a long time. So it's probably more obvious now as people become more familiar with the show and how it's shot and, and people are more exposed to cameras themselves. Look, everybody's filming themselves now, right? So you, you see how, how someone's facial expressions can change and, and why they would do things in certain situations. So people aren't as naive to the process as they used to be. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. But, I mean, that, that's been going on for, for years. It was one of the things that um, a lot of the cast members would talk about when the cameras weren't around or when other people would do it, we would call them out. Now, the cameras can't show that, but we would be sitting somewhere, we'd have a conversation, and you're, you're saying, like, ah, I like, you know, we're talking about, you know, the price of tea in China or whatever. Like, okay, hey, the blah, 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 X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, and then someone else, the cameras will come, come around and someone else will pop in and go like, hey, don't you think so-and-so's a bitch? And you're like, whoa, 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 hold up. We were just talking about, you know, some other subject completely unrelated. Why are you throwing this in here? And it's obvious that the cameras were around and you wanted them to get that footage of you making this, making this uh, comment or whatever. You wanted to get that footage. And the, the weird thing about that is you can't control that. You know, if you're, the, if you're the kind of cast member that wants to control the narrative, you're going to be sorely disappointed and frustrated with the process. You're going to be very upset with what happens, with what's shown, because in your mind, we're all the hero of our own story, right? So in your mind, it's going down a certain way. Well, your perspective is not shared by the other 20 people in the house or the cameras or the story producers or anybody else. And that's a very rough thing that for cast members to have to experience. And it usually happens on the first show. Now, I think nowadays they don't even 
bring in real world kids anymore. They bring in people from all these other shows. So everyone's had yeah. their own experience. Um, but it's a very real thing. It's a very real effect. And I see cast members, I've seen cast members change from the first show they do, second, third, and fourth, where they realize, oh, I can't control this anymore. So whereas in the first one, they're at, and there are still ones out there that know that if they scream and yell, they're going to get camera time and they're going to get invited back. So they'll be like, Wah! you know, <laughs> or try to, or try to like fake create a rival, you know, so they can get around, yeah. they'll have one. I mean, I still think like me and CT, like that was like legit straight up. That was a hardcore uh, process because, um, I mean, we were the, we were the original, original people that couldn't be in a room together, you know, after, um, after, what was it, Duel 2, I mean, the reunion show, they had to bring in extra security for the reunion show because they were scared we were going to have round, round two, uh, like, backstage and stuff. So, um, you know, luckily that those things have been smoothed over. But I think the authenticity of the early, of the early shows, the ones that I was on at least moving forward to the later ones, uh, was what drove it. And, but it was also what created so much angst around it, why it affected us personally and... Um, and really kind of got to us. I mean, I, I had, I've had many, uh, uh, nights I've lost sleep over things that I've done, things that I've said on camera that I wish hadn't happened. I mean, look, that fight, I'm not proud of it. Look, you, you I am the person I am because of the things that I've done, right? We're all a, a, a product of our experiences, but you know, I'm not, a, I'm not proud of that moment. I'm, I'm definitely not excited that it was captured on, on television, but you know, you live and learn. Yeah. And we'll definitely uh, get to that later. But something I wanted to knock out quick, since you mentioned about them pulling from uh, other shows, was uh, just to put into perspective, uh, this past season, or the one that's just currently uh, airing now, they actually pulled from a singer from America's Got Talent and a WWE wrestler, just to put things into perspective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? When I was working for Puff, um, I ran into Sean Merriman. Sean Merriman used to come to parties and stuff, and like he was around. Yeah. And I didn't realize he was on it, so he started talking to me. He was like, "Oh yeah, blah blah blah." And he said, and I was, he was like mentioning his challenge. I was like, "Wait, they put you on a challenge?" He was like, "Oh yeah, me and CT. I know CT from the challenge, etc." And I thought to myself, "That's where we've gotten. Like they're pulling NFL players, not just NFL players, but Pro Bowl NFL players. Yeah. And putting mm -hmm. them on challenges. Like wow, because like when it started." It was just fun and game. If you watch the games, it was like everybody into a pit and you were all slimy and, you know, it was kind of fun. My first one was Battle of the Sexes 2, where, you know, you're not going to have feats of strength with men against women. It just wouldn't be fair, obviously, because of the, the dis discrepancy in, in strength. But um, we would do the, like, games that were fun, melting a big block of ice, you know, target practice things. Things were that were just like carnival games almost that I thought were fun. And as I did more and more challenges... The challenges themselves graduated to, like, basically gladiator games. Yeah. Right? Uh, when Brad and Landon got back from uh, the Duel 2, they were both pretty jacked up. Um, shoulder, I think Brad's shoulder was done. I think Landon ended up having to have surgery at some point. Um, there have been a number of injuries that have occurred from these challenges. I mean, people go hard. And you don't realize it when you're watching it because they only have an hour to show it. Some of these elimination rounds and challenges go for hours. I remember on, on Gauntlet 3, Frank and MJ were in the sand for what seemed, must have been at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Like, dragons, they were, they were, wow. they were bloodied, their, uh, 
elbows and knees were all bloody from the, some, trying to dr grind the sand out. I mean, we were out there. It was a long time. Uh, and they were a complete, a complete muscle failure by the end. So obviously they don't have enough time to show that. They have to use a time lapse or, you know, skip parts. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's gladiator games to an extent. Uh, <laughs> but that's what the fans want to see, I guess. So that's what they keep doing. I, I really wanted to do a challenge uh, that kind of got back to the old ways, which is what I talked to Mark Long about in doing the new OG challenge. Get back to the old ways of having them be fun, more fun than kind of intense and yeah, know, based around arguments and fights and stuff. You mentioned the OG challenge that actually airs on uh, April first. Were you contacted to be on it? Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, I was contacted to be on it, um, and I can do it right now. You know, like I like I mentioned uh, after Rivals, I started working for an entertainment marketing firm, and I was there for five years. And I was and I was we were going like gangbusters. It was amazing. It was one of, uh, it was an awesome experience, but there was no time for a challenge. And there was a small gap in between where they contacted me before I started working for Puff. And I said, I could do one, but I didn't uh, get on it. Um, and that was the first time I had not been, they'd asked me and I, they said, uh, you know, do you want to do it? And I said, yes. And then I hadn't been on it. So I was a little bit weird, uh, weirded out, not weirded out, but I was confused by that. But, um, you know, they have their own agenda, their own strategy for casting the show. And then Mark contacted me about OGs about a year ago, a year and a half, more, actually way before the pandemic. Um, he, we had talked about it. And then during the pandemic, he was like, I want to get this going. I was like, sure. You know, I've got all these projects that I'm working on, but I'm, I'm down to help. Like, how can I, how can I help? So I felt like I was in on the ground floor. And then uh, when it all rolled out, uh, they called me and said, are you available? I said, yeah. And they didn't pick me. Uh, and I was a little bit confused and a little bit frustrated because when I saw the cast, I was like, wait a minute, uh, something's not right here. But because uh, those, those are all my boys, like Cyrus is on there, you know, I mean, I'm, shoot, I don't know Cyrus forever. Um, Ace is on there for my cast. Ace, yep. So, I mean, I, look, it looks like a fun cast, uh, very dynamic. I'm sure it's going to be a great show. I'm looking forward to, to checking it out, especially because of the cast. You know, I haven't really followed up with a lot of the newer shows because there's just, I feel like there's a pocket of time where you can watch your section of the shows and follow the people, but then there's just too many personalities and too many people to keep up with. And uh, you just kind of follow your, your core group. Uh, but this one looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, uh, you know, and as much as I am kind of put off by what happened with, for those of you who don't know, um, I, I've had a number of different experiences on a number of different shows, and some have been good and some have been bad, but overall, I'd say they were good. And um, I have, I'm definitely interested in doing another one. I just can't let it. If I'm busy with doing something, I can't just fullheartedly jump into a challenge if it would detract from what I'm trying to do professionally. So the timing has to be right. And uh, this timing actually did it did time out right this time, but you know they didn't they didn't pick me. So I, I have my own theories as to why that was but <laughs> but uh let's kind of now kind of uh bring it back a ways um taking you back um to kind of like how this started because i want to kind of get more into like your casting story so to speak and kind of like the long form uh story of how it went down oh yeah mine uh you got to remember this was this was a while this was you know 20 years ago um they were casting for Making the Band 2. I feel I find it very coincidental that I ended up working for Diddy, you know, after the fact that I auditioned for Making the Band 2. But, uh, you know, I was always rapping in my free time, goofing around, rapping, freestyling. 
And so I was working on a movie for Fox, and my friend called me and said, hey, they're auditioning for Make of the Band 2 at the Highlands, which is in L.A., off of, off of Hollywood Boulevard. You should stop in and, and just audition. And I looked at the timetable, and I, I talked to my production coordinator and said, can I take this break? And she let me, and I was early there. I got there like 30 minutes early, so I was one of the first in there. And I was wearing an all-purple velour jumpsuit. I had on blue or big puffy white and one sneakers. I had a, my big hair. My hair doesn't afro, but it's just like puffy, you know, like people remember it. It was just all puffed out. And uh, I rapped Eminem. So they only had like five different songs that you could rap. I picked Eminem and I was terrible. I mean, Mike got awful. It was, it was crap. Uh, I was missing lines. Like I was off beat. I, my voice sounded terrible. So I, I mean, at the end, I looked up, I didn't even want to hear what they had to say. I dropped the microphone and just walked off stage. <laughs> I just left. <laughs> I walked out. The Highlands is on the third floor of this the complex. I got down. I was on foot walking down the stairs. I got down to the first floor. And I heard, Adam, 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 Adam. Wait, 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 wait. And it was a PA, a production assistant, chased me down the stairs and said, they want to talk to you. And I said, nope, I'm not going to be on one of those blooper shows. Like, where, hey, how bad it was. You know, those like idol blooper shows where they just – they show the worst people. Um, I was like, I'm not going to be on a blooper show. They said, no, 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 no. Another casting director wants to talk to you. It's like, okay. So I went back upstairs, and they handed me a packet, like an inch thick. And it was one of those personality kind of tests. And like, this, these people are really interested in you, but they would like you to fill this out. So I filled out all these questions. Like, what is your greatest fear? Like, well, what do you wish you could do? If you could have one superhero power, what would it be? All that kind of stuff, right? Fill out all these crazy questions. And I go up to the a recording area, and there's a man and a woman with a camera, and they just sit down. They're like, "Hey, we're we're shooting, we're casting for a reality show. We just love to ask some questions." And I was like, "Okay." And I sat down, and it was supposed to be about 15, 20 minutes, and I was up there for about an hour and a half. And I got along with them. They got along with me, and we had a great time. And at the end, I left. I gave them my number, and I, that was it. I walked out of there. I did not hear back from them for. I think it was an eight or nine months. So eight or nine months later, I'm working on a, a fashion magazine show for the African American Heritage Network, and the show's about to end, and I get a call from them. It's like, hey, this is Buna Murray. We were the ones that interviewed you nine months ago. Are you still interested in doing a show? I was like, yeah. They said, it's real world. Come in for an interview. So I thought, okay, this kind of times out well. They're like, we're sending a PA to your house on Saturday afternoon. Just be ready to come in. So I did that. I got in the car, went to the interview, and didn't really know what to expect. And I sat there and I interviewed with them for another like hour, hour and a half. And they were like, thanks. That was great. You know, um, we'll, we'll be in touch. And the next call I get is, hey, you're in the finals for this, for either Real World or Road Rules. And we're going to fly in 30 people. And we're going to pick seven for Real World and six for Real Road Rules. And you're in the finals. I was like, oh, shoot. Great. All right. Um, so I held off on interviewing for another job just to just to wait. They said they would let me know within two weeks, and they called me on the way home, and I went nuts. Like, my buddy was in the car with me. I was so excited to go. Um, I never watched The Real World, though. That was the thing, right? See, I had never seen the show because reality TV at the time had the stigma. I worked in what we call real entertainment, right, like scripted television, scripted film, and the reality genre hadn't blown up the way it has in the past 15 years where half the programming is – is non-scripted. Um, so when I finally did watch it, I got to watch what the show right before mine was Vegas. And when I watched it, it was there were 
four hot girls, three dudes in a hot tub, making out, having orgies, doing things like that. I was like, whoa! And I was 22 at the time, so I was like, this looks awesome. Like, <laughs> what? Um, and I didn't have any any reservations about you know being on on camera. You know, I didn't really see it as real television. Um, you know, I worked in a world where only the only real only real celebrity were musicians and um, actors, real actors. You know, reality TV people weren't weren't real celebrities. It was something to do for fun. You know, and um, I signed in. I jumped in with both feet. They flew me to Paris after the call. I think it was another two or three weeks before I flew to Paris. Um, wow, that was it. It happened in a whirlwind, and it was. And we returned. I remember the the show aired the first week of June, and we flew back on May twenty fifth. So we were only back for you know ten days or so before before the show ended. So I didn't really have much of a of a of a reprieve once we got back. Uh, it was an intense intense experience. And then from there, you know, I went from and I I'd always been around celebrity. You know, my father is in the Commodores. For those of you who don't know, it's it's a R and B group from the sixties and seventies and eighties. Actually, they're, they've been around forever. They still perform to this day, um, and. Because of that, I was around it a lot growing up, and um, when I was in L.A., you'd see it all the time, but it was never me, so it's a very it's a very different perspective when you're standing next to someone who has celebrity status versus being the person, and what happens is you, you become very self-conscious initially. I think, it was, I think it was Madonna or somebody famous that said, people are worthless for the 12 months after they become famous, because your world changes, you know, um, people treat you differently. When people meet you or hear, or hear you or, or, or you're exposed to them in any capacity, they think they know you ahead of time or they have judgments that are, are pre-existing because of either things that have happened in their life that they attribute to you or things that you bring about. Like when they see you, they have this visceral reaction, right? So it's a unique experience and you have to get used to it. Um, and some people don't adapt well. Um, some people that I know very personally from the shows haven't adapted well, so it's uh, it's been a roller coaster ride, and I'm I'm lucky. I think that uh, there have been so many people kind of in my shoes or have experienced the same things that I've experienced. There's kind of a fraternity now, a sorority of people who have experienced it and know it. And some people use it, some people use it for the uh, the worst at it. You know, some people just can't handle it, and um, you know. One of the things that I'm experiencing now is in this culture we live in, people don't care about the truth anymore. You know, they'll just they'll just believe anything, and um, when when they're presented with the truth, they don't care. They either stick to their guns or they just say, "Oh, that's the case. I'll move on with no repercussions." People can come out. I mean, uh, I'm in a case. I'm in a situation now where you know, uh, with Kellyanne saying years ago that you know that she was assaulted, and like then people find out it's not true. But they don't care, right? They'll they'll say, "Well, that wasn't the case, but it's the case now, moving forward." So, uh, even though you you didn't do it, other people have. So we'll just move on, not knowing how detrimental it is when you when you talk shit about somebody. It affects it affects it can affect their life and their livelihood. I mean, what we do is put out there for the world to see. So there's a certain amount of expectation that your, your behavior is public domain, right? But that doesn't mean you can just say anything you want to say, right? Like you can't just go out, you can't walk into a crowded theater and, and yell fire. 
that the First Amendment doesn't protect that because it puts people in harm's way. The same amount of, it's the same thing with, with this, this notoriety and this, this, this celebrity status. So, um, you know, when, when you're someone in, in a situation that, that re requires you to kind of defend yourself publicly all the time, you can get to a place of frustration where you don't under, you don't really uh, have a, mic a big enough microphone to get through to all the people. You just have to accept the fact that some people just don't care about the truth. Some people are always going to feel the way they're going to feel, and that's it. And that's very frustrating for a normal person to understand, right? Because you think if I told if I showed someone I said, "Hey, the sky is blue," and I showed it to them, that person would go, "Oh, okay, we're moving along." But that's not how the world works, and that's not how society works. And if we're seeing that now with all like fake news and all these going on. Our society is so divided because we don't know what to believe anymore. We'll, you'll watch something happen the same way that someone else will watch some, watches something happen, and you'll both have different perspectives on it. And it's, it's crazy to me, but that's just the world we live in. You know, I think it's criminal. I think, I honestly believe that, like, I use Kellyanne as an example, but I think what she did was criminal. You know, I think Kellyanne going out publicly saying things that didn't happen, and then just going, and then rescinding them and saying, oh, well, you know, and then not mentioning it anymore or bypassing it, you shouldn't be able to do that. I think anybody who, who, who does something, let's say, let's call it just sexual assault. Any guy who does something inappropriate or sexually assaults a woman should be in jail, no doubt. But, and that's criminal activity. But if a woman goes out and says that this guy sexually assaulted me and it didn't happen, she should be in jail. I think there's this huge double standard right now because you look at what's happening with Deshaun Watson and Cuomo and all these people. Like, if, if there's... People assume, for millions of years, men assumed, uh, people, societies assumed that, you know, women were lying or that women weren't telling the truth. So there was this, this, I mean, men acted with impunity for millennia, right? So now the pendulum is swinging the other way. And they're like, okay, well now women are having this Me Too movement, this, this moment of empowerment, great. Let's correct it. And now we're overcorrecting. So now it's like anytime a woman says anything, people are too scared to say, well, wait a minute, let's look at the facts. So I understand it. Look, nobody's going to cry. It's like being a white man, right? Nobody's going to cry about If a white guy's like, oh, reverse racism, nobody gives a shit. Like nobody, nobody wants to hear you right now because black people and people of color have been oppressed for so long. We're trying to correct this thing. And we, yes, there's going to be some overcorrection. I feel like the same, same way with women. It's like, you know, women have been abused for so long and have not been hurt, have been muted for so long that there's going to be this overcorrection. Uh, and in that gets swept up some collateral damage. So um, I, I understand that that's happening, but it doesn't make it any less criminal, I think. I don't think we, we should treat it like it's any less than that it affects people any less than just spouting lies and having no basis for lies because it does, it does affect me. Like I, I, I admit like I was hurt when I, I was shocked when I heard it, but not nearly as shocked because it's like if someone came out to you, Mike, and was like, hey, um, Mike was born with six fingers on his left hand and then put that out there, you'd be like, what the heck? Like that makes no sense and you'd laugh at it. Which is what I did when you know when I when I hear crazy stuff. Oh yeah, okay, that's crazy. But then if you don't react to it and you assume that people aren't going to believe it, and they do, then you have to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. These let's 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 correct this. And when you find out that people don't care about the correction at all, that's when the frustration sets in. So I'm I'm vamping a little bit just because this has been this has been on my mind, <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I was actually put, uh, we put Kellyanne back on the show, and I was like, wait a minute, I was thinking like maybe they put her back on and didn't put me back on because of that. Um, even though everybody knows that didn't happen, if you say it, you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube, right? Yeah. So I mean, I'm over it uh, for now for this moment in this second, but like 
you know, as, as we move forward through this whole process, I think it's important to take everything into perspective and say, okay, yes, I understand that there's a lot going on out there that we don't know about, but let's reserve judgment until we have the facts because I have all the, I have, I personally have all the facts and I choose not to disparage people in the public eye to come out just for the sake of, of, of a little bit of notoriety. I, I could get some attention. Dude, I could write a book. I could go on a podcast and tell all the dirty secrets but I don't because I don't want to disparage people. And, it's, you know, there's no there's no reason to do that for some minimal gain on my part to destroy another person, especially, more importantly, if it's not true. Right. So right. Um, I, that that has been on my mind. And, and there's a certain amount of power you have. And I've said this for many years, ever since the Spider-Man came out with it. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. And once you have a platform and you have a place to speak on it, and you have this now with your podcast and what you're doing on YouTube and through all the, your different media forms, um, you know, you have, a, you have a responsibility to kind of tell the truth, and hopefully it will start to filter back down again. You know, it'll start to filter back down because all we are is, is our reputation, unfortunately, in this, in this life right now. Um, that's all we are, because once you, once you lose your reputation, it's like, well, we have too much other stuff to listen to. We have too many other, other people we, that are screaming out there, you know, for us to listen to. So once we lose... Once you don't want to pay attention to one guy, another guy is right there to fill the spot. Um, and I get that. But I also know that, that the smart people, the ones that really get it, those are the ones that I, that I surround myself with, that, that I surround myself with now. And for too long, I think at, when you're in the entertainment industry and you get sucked into certain different vortexes, you surround yourself with people that kind of just either are yes men or tell you what you want to hear or do things around you because it helps them. And when you finally get to a healthy place where you're surrounded by people that you care about and they care about you, you start to see the light. And that's, I think that's what 2020, going back to 2020 did for me, is that I got to that place where it's like, okay, what do you really want to do, kid? Like, I mean, and you got to do it creatively and you got to do it at, from, from the goodness of your own heart. Yeah, no, um, I actually wasn't going to, I had a few subscribers actually wanted me to uh, talk about uh, what you were just talking about. I wasn't actually going to bring it up, but since you brought it up, I was going to just... Um, kind of ask you to like gloss over like that uh situation i guess you could say um and kind of like I, I don't know maybe clear the name of yourself or like what uh actually the situation was yeah um you know i don't want to get too far too bogged down with the details i know everybody wants to hear them but again um they would make kellyanne look very bad so i'm not going to go into it like that um but you know she has whatever she has going on in her own head and i don't want to speak to that but uh uh, nothing. I didn't. I did nothing that would warrant uh, any type of. I didn't do anything what we would call wrong, right? So um, there was no sexual assault. There was no um, coercion. There was, no, there was nothing like that, you know. And we're in a time right now where people are hypersensitive to that. With you know, Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein, and now obviously, I feel like every other day there's a new there's, there are new charges against a new celebrity for some kind of sexual misconduct, right? And, um, again, I, I was shocked when I heard it because anybody who was there knows that this didn't happen. And so here's a woman who, you know, 10 years post facto comes out and is like, all these women are coming out and criminally says things about me that are not true because she knows she's not going to get any flack for me. She knows that everyone's going to support her. Everyone's going to say, oh, we're so sorry this happened to you. Uh, she wasn't relevant at the time. People are going to rally around her. Uh, just like they're rallying around all the other women who were courageous enough to come forward. 
And it's, there's such a strong contrast between being courageous enough to come forward with something and being cowardly enough to falsely accuse somebody. And that's why I say it's criminal because, you know, as just as courageous as, as the women are who legitimately have complaints, there's an, just as much cowardice associated with women who are just doing it for attention um, and destroying other, other, other men's lives or women's lives, whoever they're accusing, just so they can get a little bit of attention. And, um, and, I, and I get it. Like, it's really difficult for women now in the public eye who um, might be aging out of a certain uh, demographic, right? You know, um, everyone goes through it. I feel it's particularly difficult for uh, people in reality TV as they watch the younger generations and younger women, younger cast members coming in, um, kind of taking their place. So I get the, the, the attraction to, to saying things just to get attention. But, um, you know, I have all the details of what transpired and none of what she says is with regard to any activity that would someone would consider to be inappropriate is accurate in any way, shape or form. Even my friends like laugh at it. Like this is crazy that she's talking, not laugh at it. Like it's like sexual misconduct. It's funny laughing at it. Like, cause they know it didn't happen. And the, and what actually did happen is an interesting story, but I'm not going to put somebody else's business out there like that. So, um, I think it's just a shame because the people that look, I've, I've explained it to people, and even when they know I'm innocent or, or didn't do anything wrong, we'll still still say, like, we don't care. Like, we're still in, in the business of finding people that are, are guilty and going after them. So um, there are people out there that are going <laughs> to hate me no matter what I say um, and don't care that I'm innocent. Uh, and that's, that's just the case. I mean, if, you, if you're one of those people... Um, that doesn't really take into account rational behavior or rational thought or, or a pragmatic way of approaching a situation that I don't really care what you think because it's not, it's not going to, nothing I did is going to move, move the needle anyway. There are some people that are out there just for blood um, and they don't care who they hurt and how many innocent people get swept up in the net. No, I'm definitely glad that uh, you shared because I think that it's important in uh, just social or society in general. I feel like there's always a mis conception and people typically when they hear one thing never take the chance to hear the other so i'm glad that uh you were able to kind of like talk about that and uh kind of clear like the uh situation a little bit and hear your perspective because i feel like for the past couple of years like that's uh not been prominent but it's been kind of like an easter egg amongst the uh challenge fandom i yeah. guess you could say yeah, and, and I, I never said anything because I didn't want to lend a microphone to it, right? Like, I'm like, this is crazy. Like I said, it's like if somebody came out and said, oh, you you know, you were born with extra appendages, you'd say, like, that's that's a crazy rumor. And that's yeah. more in a concept it was to me. But but given the social climate right now, right, with sexual assault being such a huge, huge uh, issue, um, obviously that, that brought it to the forefront more so than I think it would have been in the past. And, and look, it, like I said, anybody guilty of this behavior, I, I'm, I'm all for it. I've always been a proponent of, of women's rights. I have a very strong mother that I was raised with. My father wasn't around as much as most fathers because he was on tour when I was young. And so I, my mother did a lot of the fatherly things uh, when I was growing up. And I've always been around a strong uh, female figure in my life. Um, and I take it very, very seriously. Um, so yeah, it, 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 hurt, it hurt me that in particular. You could accuse me of anything else I wouldn't be bothered with, but that in particular is a is significant for me because of how I was raised and because of all the important prominent female women in my life 
and 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 how I how I view myself. I take pride in in my ability to to curate healthy relationships with with women. Mm. But uh, we could uh, leave that topic and uh, put that kind of to bed now and kind of transition into uh, some challenge stuff, maybe uh, lighter topics. Um, I, I want to ask you, though, kind of because do you ever think about time to time about have Big Easy not gone down in that final? You potentially, uh, well, would have been a challenge champion had it not happened. Do you think about that from time to time or is that kind of something that you're just uh, whatever about? Yeah, the two the two. I think about it is, you know, watching the final with CTN Rivals, which was my fault. And then uh, that, you know, with Big Easy, because we really didn't need to drag him and force him like we did. In our minds, we wanted to be ahead at every stage. And I think a lot of athletes in, in what we, the traditional sports feel this way, right? If you're a favorite, look at March Madness right now. When you're a favorite and you're, and you're a team that is supposed to win by a large margin, which we were in the finals of, of, of Gauntlet 3. I mean, we had all our guys, strong guys left. Um, we had, like, basically culled the herd. So we had only strong players in the end. And they, we had dominated from beginning to end of that challenge. We were supposed to win by a large margin. And when we started to fall behind, we went into panic mode. And we are like, we, come on, it's, it's Eric dragging us back. Come on, Eric, and try to drag him along instead of just accepting the fact, like, look, at some point, we're going to blow past them. Yeah, we'll just, just do what we do, and we're going to... Because this whole thing can't be just a marathon. They're not just going to have us run in circles for eight hours, right? We're going to get to a point where we need to lift something or move something, and then we'll just blow right past them because we have six guys left, and then we have two. So rather than have that come into our heads, we dragged him along and caused the situation which ended up... You know, he passed out. For those of you who don't know, he felt, uh, he passed out from heat exhaustion, and they, and they, can't, they um, disqualified us because... We had to have all our guys cross the finish line. So uh, I, I liken it to the a team in the, like the tournament who is behind late and they panic instead of saying, "Look, we're the better team. We're down six or eight or ten points. Don't worry about it. Stick to the game plan, and we'll win this game." And they panic, and then the underdog, 15 seed or 14 seed, wins the wins the game because they panicked. And but hindsight's 2020. Of course, if I had it to do all over again, I'd say, "Hey guys." The tail end of this is going to be a two-hour dig. So let's just wait till the two-hour dig and not worry about this five-minute or ten-minute gap right now. We'll, we'll blow by them. Wish I had the foresight to do that. Um, but the truth is there was no way to know that. And, and I don't regret it. I don't, I, don't, I don't lose sleep over it because that, was a, that, was a, that decision makes sense to me. It made mm. sense in the, time, in the time that I did it. I made that decision. It was the wrong one, but I'm not going to make the right decision every time, and neither are my teammates. And so something like that, I don't lose sleep over. It, I, dude, I wish we won. Sure, why not? Why not collect the money and, and, and have the title and all of that? But truth be told, that was, that, that's something that I, I just chalk it up to the, to the competition gods, the challenge gods. We lost that one. I don't lose sleep over it. Move on. I do lose sleep over the end of Rivals because uh, that was a mental mistake I made. For those of you who don't know, at the end of Rivals, I picked up the wrong ball and went the wrong direction. We were also favored to win that one. I mean, me and CT were the strongest team by far, in my opinion. And we should have won that one. And me grabbing the wrong ball, going the wrong direction. And there were rumors that I had thrown that challenge. Not, nothing could be further from the truth. I wanted to win. Sure, I'm friends with all these guys outside of the challenge. And that's the thing. Like, I'm going to, you know... I have relationships outside of that challenge 
especially because I work in entertainment. I think I probably had more relationships outside that challenge than most people that were doing them. But in that moment, I wanted to win. In any challenge, I want to win. Not just for the money. Um, I want to win because I, in the spirit of competition, I like to win. I'm a competitor. I played sports my whole life. So there's no part of me that ever had quit in it. And um, that's the reason the, the end of Rivals really, really gets me. A, because I think we would have won the whole thing. But B, because um, I really think that it was my fault we lost. Sure, I mean, the, leading up to that, there were some things that happened that could have kept us out of that elimination round. But really, the elimination round in Rivals was... Um, it's probably like the low point in my of, of competition for me, which is which is why I want to get back on so bad. You know, that was the end, and then I started my my uh, the second part of my entertainment career, and I spent you know five years at my entertainment company, and then the other two years working for Puff and all of that. So I didn't have time to go back for a challenge, which is why I'm a little jealous now because now that I am able to go back, and I do have you know I can leave for a month right now and go and do it. And I was like, Mark, let me do the OGs, and I got passed up on that. That's very frustrating. No, yeah, this is the section that I'm actually, uh, since we're talking about all this stuff, it's kind of like my favorite section because my favorite part of kind of talking about the challenge is talking about the what-ifs or the hypotheticals or the theories and whatnot, and that actually has come up a lot um, as well uh, with this whole CT elimination with you guys at the end, the rivals one. People wanted me, well, subscribers wanted me to ask if um, there was any potential deal in place of uh, you throwing and whatnot, so none of that, no. No, um, I'm not going to say deals aren't made, right? I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say deals are made, but I'm not going to say they're not made, all right? What I will say is that I've never cut a deal. Not once. I've done six challenges, and not once have I ever cut a deal um, that would affect the, um, the outcome of any challenge. Um, I, never cut a, I never cut a deal where that would, have, would affect, like, hey, um, I, I, I mean, there was a time where, on you know Frank and I were on opposite teams, and with Frank I was like, all right, I'll, I'll if you keep me out of the elimination round, I'll throw this challenge. But really, when it, when, the, when the challenge day came, Frank tried his best and I tried my best, but really there was no there was no adhe adhesion to it, right? So the interest was there because it was the final challenge, and we went, both wanted to get to the final and to have a shot at the money. So we danced around the idea, but nothing ever came to fruition. Um, and there was never, and, and certainly nothing to ever get me eliminated, right? So if I'm going to throw that challenge, if I'm going to throw a challenge to do something, it's to keep me there, right? It's never to, so that I would be eliminated. So if anything, I would broker a deal, where, a deal where the other team would throw it so they would get eliminated and I would share the money with them. But I'm never going to trust somebody else to win the money and then share it with me. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but if somebody wants to cut a deal and keep me there, and then, and then afterwards I have to cut them a check, I'll entertain the idea. But um, I would, you know, and again, it's against rules, by the way. That's against the challenge rules anyway. So none of that could ever be known publicly, you know. So, uh, well, I want to hear your thoughts on this, though, because this is one theory um, that actually would be working against you guys um, that a lot of fans have kind of speculated on, which was the final daily challenge that got you guys thrown into that elimination when uh, you guys had to, it was the helicopter when you had to climb up the ladder. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, your guy's ladder was the only one that was kind of dragging across the water. And uh, a lot of fans like to play devil's advocate here and speculate that uh, that was kind of like intentional because they wanted to see uh, you and CT um, intentional on productions end because they wanted to see you and uh, CT in that final elimination. Because I don't know, maybe for 
enticement or they thought it would get viewership. I don't know. That's what pe- people like to speculate. They um, maybe wanted that elimination to be must-see, so that's why uh, your guys' ladder kind of like hung low a little bit in the water. Do you feel like there's more to that? All right. Um, so listen carefully to everything I'm about to say because I don't want to be misrepresented. I don't want anyone else to walk away with uh, a false sense of what happened. Everything you said is true. Okay. Now, I can't speculate as to the motives for production. CT's ladder did drag in the water, but everyone else's didn't. CT would have easily climbed that rope and pulled that chain, and everything would have been different had his ladder not dragged in the water. That is all very true. Now, whether production did it on purpose, I don't know, and whether or not um, his time would have been better than Leroy's, I don't know. Right? We don't know any of those facts because they didn't happen. What I will say in defense of production is they've always been fair to me as a competitor in all my challenges. They've always tried to do what I consider to be the right thing because everyone wants to win and everybody's lobbying for their own self-interest. And I feel like they've done as good a job as possible of staying neutral. In that case, I think it was the helicopter. There's so many variables associated with that challenge, right? There's a guy flying a helicopter. Yes, he's a professional helicopter pilot, but we're talking about a couple of feet. In, in, in height, right, in, in altitude. So CT and I went first. That was one of the disadvantages of being the, the out on the outskirts of everything all the time was we, were always, we always had to go first. If anyone remembers, the female winners got to just decide the order of the men, and because all the females were on the, on the, against us, uh, me and CT were not necessarily against us, but, but they were pro-Kenny and pro-Johnny and whatnot, we had to go first. So I think the helicopter pilot botched our flight, and then got it right the rest of the way through. You know, we were the test flight. We were the practice round. And once they saw what happened, then he did the others differently. And that's just, that's just a byproduct. That's just one of the things that happens in production. You know, it's an imperfect, it's an imperfect thing, and um, we got screwed. We got screwed on that end. So I do agree. Look, that was unfair. We unfairly got thrown into that. But again, I don't know what CT's time would have been climbing that rope. Leroy got up there real fast, like real fast. And um, and so, you know, that, that's all I can say about that. I'm frustrated mm-hmm. by it. I can't blame her. I can't get mad. I, I very rarely just bark about Buna Murray. They do, they do a pretty decent job of things. And when I do have a problem with them, I'll let people know about it. I'll put, I'll, <laughs> I've been around. No, I mean, look, I, I've been around – Different directors, different producers, uh, different teams, you know, cameramen, sound guy, the whole thing. Different, I've done six of them in different countries. Um, the only people that have done more than me are like Derek and, and Johnny. I mean, they practically live on that show. But, um, as a, you know, I feel like they do as good a job as they can, and they're pretty fair, uh, which is why it's so frustrating now, um, kind of looking at it like, okay, as we move forward, like, how does, how does, that, how does that impact kind of my relationship with them moving forward. I don't want to do challenges forever, I don't think, but they're fun, man. I can't, I mean, like, I know, <laughs> I know I'm, I'm older now, but damn, man, I still, th- I still think they, they feel like summer camp. When you go on those challenges and you get there, but those first day when you walk in that house and you're like, it's all brand new and the fridge is stocked and you're just running around looking at stuff, I don't care how old you are, man, that, that shit is fun. That is, that is a fun <laughs> day right there, so... Even the competition is fun. I mean, for any athlete, for any, anybody who, who is competitive in any way, you know those butterflies you get right before a game, you know, like pumping yourself up and all of that? 
you know, if you're not competing in high school or college anymore, it's tough to get those, right? Like, you know, I play pickup basketball, or, you know, I, I'm in an adult baseball league now, and, you know, I, I love to compete, but there's nothing like that camera being on you, and it, there being, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a pot that you're going for. I mean, the amount of, the, the energy level, the adrenaline, the adrenaline that you get that's pumping through your veins because of that is unparalleled. I mean, it's why, think about, like, why Brett Favre kept coming back after he retired, Well, these guys, I mean, uh, if you're an athlete and you're in a stadium and there's 70,000 people screaming your name, there's nothing like that. So I think there's a level of addiction, of adrenaline addiction that's associated with that experience for sure. <laughs> no, yeah, for sure. And I mean, since we're on the whole uh, topic of Rivals 1, we've gotten this far without kind of like talking about it. And uh, before I dive into it, I just want to preface and say everything we're about to talk about um, in no way, shape or form is um, any direct uh reflection of who ct is now i just want to say that i'm very proud and admire the way he's uh grown over the past couple of years with uh, being a father and stuff And he's definitely shown a uh, tremendous amount of growth on our tv screens now but just bringing it back a ways to a uh, little back in time and uh, i know most fans can point at the duel two fight as uh kind of like the big moment obviously because it was but I mean, if you really look at it, you guys kind of were going at each other a little bit from since your real world Paris. I mean, you had a gauntlet three incident when he kind of poured the uh, bottle on your head. And then yep. duel two is finally the blow up. So we're taking it back away is kind of to when you and CT were first like met in real world Paris, kind of how that bad blood, I guess you could say, kind of stemmed and started. Why do you feel like there was a disconnect? I think CT comes off pretty well on camera, um, but when we when we were together in Paris, uh, I think we just rubbed each other the wrong way because of, of um, I guess the way when you're around somebody all the time, uh, it's different than just seeing it, like snippets of them, right? Um, there are things that that weigh on you day in and day out um, that you don't experience through the screen. And I think that's just what happened in Paris. You know, he, we would go out and he would get in altercations all the time. He was very abrasive. And, you know, I, me, me, Ace and I would like to go out and just have fun. And more than, more than, more often than not, when we would go out with him, the, the night would end in a fight or some altercation or us getting thrown out of a club. And so that got frustrating. And, and after a while, it was like, man, I got your back. You're in my house. Like, we're supposed to be roommates, but you're really detracting from my ability to enjoy this experience because every time we go out, I'm worried that we're going to be in some kind of fight. So that turned into him thinking that I don't have his back, right? Like, oh, you're not my brother. You're not my roommate. You're not, you're not that close to me because it should be unconditional love. So that's the way he viewed it. And I viewed it as, well, if it's unconditional love, you got to have my back and appreciate my perspective and know that I don't want to go out and get in fights every night. So I think there was that, that was what happened. And the, the fight in Paris, so in, in Paris, we were at a bar he starts talking to mess to some guy. He and the guy get into it. He hits the, punches the guy a couple of times. Me and Ace help break the fight up, and he's mad at me for not jumping in and trying to punch this guy or try to like defend him in the fight. He was in never he was never in any danger. These guys didn't really want to fight back. The guy took two punches and didn't even punch back. But through his mind, and in his mind, and this is what I'm assuming, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he saw that as me not defending him, me not having his back. So that was the beginning of the rift, right? And then 
um, as we move forward, it just we just became it became this thing where neither one of us wanted to have a major presence in the other's life, but we were forced to be together because of the show. So when you do the show, unfortunately, and I don't think people understand this enough, you are inexorably linked to people that you've been on shows with that are in your cast forever. You know, which is why earlier when I was saying it's so detrimental to a lot of people when you when you say things and when you make disparaging comments or you say things that aren't true because you can't take those things back. So when you have an experience with someone on camera, you can't take those things back. Those live out there forever. And because of that, I think that only the animosity only grew uh, because we couldn't get away from each other. As much as we wanted to kind of separate, we were always linked by, by those experiences on, on screen. And every time we went into people, it's like, hey, how's CT doing? Or hey, how's Adam doing? You know. And um, then when we finally did see each other again, um, on uh, the three, uh, we, we kept it together. We were fine, we were fine, we were fine. But because we had buffer, we had the competition buffering everything, in the end, I was trying to keep him out of another fight. He was one of our stronger players. He was about to punch uh, Frank and get kicked off the show. So I broke that fight up, and then he turned on me. And that's when I realized this guy, you're done with him. He poured a beer on my head on television, which is very emasculating. And very, you know, it's, just, it's one of those things where, of course, I can lash out and try to man up and, and punch him and save face. But then I get kicked off the show. So there's really no... Bu- viable recourse for me at that point. And having to watch that later, I was embarrassed. And, and, and that's one of the reasons that I, that the gaunt, um, the dual two fight happened was because the last time we were together on the gauntlet three, he poured a beer on my head and I was just over it. You know, um, I was willing to just kind of put, put things aside, but then unfortunately some alcohol got involved on both sides. It was a long night of partying and um, the night before, he had pushed Isaac around. He had thrown Isaac around. The cameras didn't capture it, but he was bullying Isaac. And I just couldn't take it anymore. I was like, this guy can't be a bully on the show. And I felt kind of responsible because he was my cast member. And I felt like no one was going to stick up for themselves and no one was going to step up to him. Um, but because I knew him better than anybody on that cast, I was in a unique position to say or do something to, to, to stop this behavior. And it escalated unnecessarily. I take full responsibility for it. And, um, and yeah, and, and, and the rest is, is caught on camera, which they did a really great job of, of footage because there was only, that was our day off, and they only had one camera guy there. So I'm mm-hmm. impressed they got as much footage as they did with one camera. They usually have two or three or four circulating to capture, you know, every angle. But um, they did a really good job with the one lone camera they had going but um yeah man that's i mean i think there's a lot to it there's a lot to unpack there so it's tough to to kind of i know that that is a kind of the long version to most people but there's a much longer version and i'm sure ct has his his version of it um i can't say that i'm you know i hope he's in a great place right now i haven't spoken to him in a while but it seems like he's doing great he's still doing challenges and winning them and um you know it seems like he's grown as a person but i think when we were alone together for extended periods of time, there's just some kind of inherent personality difference between us that that gets brought up, you know. Um, and it's, we can, like I said, in doses we can be. I can appreciate him as a man. I hope he can appreciate me as a man. In uh, in the years that we've known each other, uh, and I just think that you know, but maybe now it's different. You know, maybe now now that we're both like older, 
I mean, we're both in different places in our lives. Like you said, he's, he's married. I don't know if he's still with his wife or not, but, um, you know, he has a kid. I'm sure he's in a different place. I'm sure fatherhood has changed him dramatically. So he's not the hothead he once was. I'm certainly not as emotional as I used to be. So, um, yeah, it would, I mean, it would be nice, nice to, to kind of catch up with him and, and uh, kind of just, just hash it out again and, and just hug each other out. No, yeah, no doubt. What, what was the dynamic, though, heading into Rivals 1, do you feel like? Because obviously the aftermath of that whole fight, like, how do you feel like you guys, were there any uh, maybe conversations had heading into Rivals 1 post-Duel 2 fight? No. No. Really? I, didn't wow. see, I didn't see CT until the bus. So I flew, we flew separately. They flew us out separately to Costa Rica. We flew into, I flew into Miami, met up with a bunch of cast members there, which they always do, because you meet up at the airport. So if you don't know who's going to be on the cast, usually you send around text messages and social media, whatever, and you find out who's going to be on the cast ahead of time, at least most of it. Um, and then you really know because it's, it's solidified once you get to the airport. And you see people in the terminal about to hop on the same flight you're getting on. But CT was on that flight from Miami to Costa Rica. So... Um, I had heard rumors about the theme of the show and that he was going to be there, but nothing nothing uh, that was validated. And then I got there, and I got on the bus, and he still wasn't there. And I sat on the bus for about 20 minutes, and sure enough, he gets on the bus. And I'm like, oh, shit. And I was, like, near the back of the bus, and he didn't even say hi to me. Um, He got on and came down to the middle portion of the bus and just sat down. And then we had about an hour and a half drive to the house, or to, or to a place where we ate, we got off the bus, and that was the first time I said, what's up? I was like, what's up? And it wasn't like, hey, man, sorry about the fight. Or, or, or. It was just more like, hey, how you been? What's going on? Almost like sweeping it under the rug. Um, because we had, if you remember, we had uh, met up in, um, on the reunion show. So we did have a couple of hours there in Los Angeles at the reunion show to get it off our chest. And then after the reunion show, we spoke again on the phone. We actually made plans to meet up off camera. Uh, we didn't meet up, but, you know, we felt we were in a good place. So um, then we didn't talk until until Rivals. So, again, I think it was because we both knew that while we were in a good place, we didn't want to just force it. I, I don't want to just pretend like it's all gravy. And that's what, you know, kind of frustrated me about people saying, well, why wouldn't you just say you were friends on Rivals? Why wouldn't you just be his friend? And it's like, I didn't want to be fake. I didn't want to go on there and say, you know, Chris and I are best friends now. We are... You know, like peanut butter and jelly and whatever other phrase you want to use and, and, and then have to watch that later and have misrepresented myself and, and lied and, and said, like, hey, we're the best of friends when, in fact, we're not because I knew after that show we would probably go our separate ways and, you know, and not start a business together or live in the same city or do any of the other stuff that everyone pretends they're going to do when they're at summer camp, you know. Um, so that's why I did that. Um, I think I could have been a little less cold. I could have I could have warmed to him more on Rivals for sure, as I watch it. But in the moment, as I remember being there in the moment, I didn't want to misrepresent myself, and that's why I, I was kind of cold to him uh, as his partner. But from a competition standpoint, I gave it my all, which is why it's so frustrating that we didn't come out with a W. Did you feel like uh, he was genuinely trying to uh, make amends and be your friend, or did you feel like he was doing that for the sake of partnership, or do you feel like he genuinely wanted a uh, friendship with you? It's a great question, because the short answer is uh, I, I don't know, but it felt as though he, – look, he was in a situation where 
he was the bad guy on that show. Um, you know, people that didn't really like him, um, both men and women, had uh, kind of a, their own separate aversions to him. So he was looking to kind of team up with me, and it would just be me and him, and we're just ride or die, you know, circle the wagons, screw everybody else until the end, which I understand because of what he was, what, what he was dealing with. But I was friends with everybody on, out there, you know. I mean, with the exception of a couple of people I didn't know that well, I was friendly with them. I mean, they stay at my house when they come to L.A. You know, they call me and, like, send me a video of themselves. So I had actual genuine friendships um, with, with these people. So I, didn't, I wasn't in the same situation where I would just be like, hey, screw you guys. You know, we're going to screw nail you to the wall. I was of this mindset, like, look, let's compete. Me and CT are the best team here. Let's compete. And if you guys can beat us, great. If you can't, I'm shipping you home. And that's how I took it. I didn't want to, I didn't want to degrade CT or I didn't want to, uh, you know, play up my relationship with these guys. I just wanted to enjoy my experience there, which truthfully I did. I had a great time in Costa Rica and when we went down to Buenos Aires. I genuinely had a good time, you know. Um, I still think it was one of, if you just talk about the experience itself, uh, it was one of the better challenges that I, most fun I've had on challenges. Um, but also just in terms of my own personal mindset where I was, I was just at peace with what was happening, who I was, I wasn't ransacked with the, this idea that, uh, you know, the whole world's going to come crashing down if I don't win this challenge or if, you know, if I, somebody says the wrong thing, I'm going to, it's going to ruin my life. So, which are, which are normal thoughts for a lot of people on these shows. You have all these ideas about what this is going to maintain. You still do them, right? You still go on the show, yeah. but, uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of angst associated with the process. Um, but I guess, I guess the, sh the, the way to describe my relationship uh, going into that was um, just kind of denial until we got to a place where we felt comfortable around each other. And I, I feel comfortable around him now. I do. I just don't want to um, pretend that it's something that it wasn't. You know, that's all I'm trying to do. Right, yeah. And um, a few subscriber questions now since uh, they wanted to know, since we're talking about obviously real world Paris, you mentioned Ace before they wanted to know, uh, what, do you have any, uh, relationship with Ace at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, Ace my boy, but we have the kind of relationship where we're really close, right? Like he's even, he's like really close to my mom even. And so, um, I don't have to talk to Ace every day or every month even for, um, for us to care about each other. You know, uh, I feel like if there's everything, anything I need, he's a guy I can reach out to and vice versa. Um, and, that's genuine love there. We have genuine love for each other. So um, it's more than just this cursory, oh, yeah, we're friends. Let's take a selfie together and show it to the world. And, and you know, like this superficial type of relationship that a lot of people have nowadays or just want to be friends with somebody for the sake of having friends. Um, and I, I feel grateful that I have a, a number of people from the shows in my life like that. Another one is Frank, Frank Rossler from oh, wow. uh, Vegas. Uh Ray and I are very close, and um, like he's a guy that I love hanging out with. Like I want to be around. Like if we're in a room and there's a hundred people in that room, and Frank's at a table, like I'm gonna go sit next to Frank, and we're gonna chop it up, and we're gonna have a good time. Like he's the kind of guy that I would genuinely be friends with, even if he wasn't on the show. And I think that's the secret to all. In anybody struggling with that who's on reality TV, I think if you could just find somebody who you would have been friends with, were they on the show or not. Um, You'll be okay because those are the ones that you can really, those are the relationships you can really hang your hat on later. Um, 
And Ace hasn't done a challenge in a long time. He's on the new one, so I'm excited to see yeah. how he comes off. And he's a fun guy. Like he, if you follow him on social media, you'll see that like, he does all these goofy stuff. He builds like bridges in random parts of Georgia, and he's always shooting stuff with his drone. And, um, he, he's an interesting guy to say the least. Uh, so um, I'm grateful that I have that relationship with him um, because we really just gotta get along. We've always gotten along from day one uh, to this day. Uh, I, I can count on one hand the number of times we've disagreed on stuff. Yeah, and another guy that uh, people wanted to know about your relationship with was actually, um, obviously this would take it back a ways, was obviously Landon. And before you go, I just want to uh, put into perspective because I actually had Landon on my show in early September. And uh, that was actually the first time that he's like visually talked on a screen about the show in 10 years, right? So it was kind of a big deal. And uh, he kind of set the uh, internet ablaze a little bit with uh, in regards to uh, his kind of perspectives on uh, CT because he actually he had some pretty high praise for you. And obviously, you got to remember through Landon's perspective, he's kind of someone who's got like kind of like shut out from the challenge world. So he doesn't really like uh, know or been familiar with like what's gone on. And gosh, probably like about 10 years. So his last uh, recollection of CT is obviously going to be a little skewed because all he would probably remember would be that uh, fight. So uh, he had, he had some uh, pretty choice words back then. It kind of uh, set the internet ablaze, but um, people wanted, yeah, people wanted to know uh, what your relationship with Landon was like. Oh, I mean, I love, see Landon and I, I think the best way I can describe it is mutual respect, right? I, um, I appreciate intellect. I always have. And Landon is one of those people who I think was just gifted, um, like physically gifted. He's a very patient and caring person. I think he has a high emotional, like he's, a very, he's, he's an intellectual guy as well. However, I think emotionally, he, he is, his emotional uh, quotient is through the roof. Uh, he feels things for people. Uh, he cares deeply about things. Um, and I, I still think he's one of the greatest athletes that the, the show's ever seen. Um, he, in terms of size, speed, strength, uh, at his peak, uh, he was pretty much unstoppable in my book. But um, when you, when you, when I, what comes to mind in terms of Landon is just that: is that I don't know how healthy a show like this would be for somebody like that who who feels. Right. You have to be a little bit numb to things. You have to be able to because you're going to get so much vitriol from people who don't understand, who weren't there. And um, I feel like Landon understands that uh, he is a very caring person who gets um, who wants who wants the well, He's an optimist. You know, he wants the world to be a certain way. And he he surrounds himself, hopefully surrounds himself with good people. I mean, you want to talk about a quality individual, somebody that I would would bring into my life, no questions asked, that's Landon. Um, you know, if Landon were dating my daughter, I'd be like, great, awesome, <laughs> you know? Um, so I understand um, how he could have uh, a negative view of CT. Look, I do as well. Um, my thing is I have a hard time disparaging anybody, talking shit, saying anything negative about somebody because I know that, like I said before, we're all the hero in our own story, right? We are all see things through our own eyes. And I try to be empathetic to people who I see as, as other people, who other people would see as evil. Um, because we love to have that, right? We love to sit here and say, I'm the good guy. These other people are evil. And if we really look at it through their, through their eyes, we would often do exactly what they did or operate in the same way they did if we put them, ourselves in their shoes. So 
um, I have a hard time saying negative things about anybody unless I truly believe they came from a place, like an awful, awful place, and they have intentional, intentionally harming somebody, um, which, you know, to an extent, I think CT was in that headspace. I think he was, um, I think he was blinded by things and just was lashing out. I don't think he was an evil person. I don't think he was doing anything to intentionally um, be evil, but I think his mindset, the way he looked at things, uh, was, was skewed incorrectly and was negatively impacting the people around him. Negatively, negatively impacted me, you know, that uh, it's like, you know, it's, I think everybody has been around people that are just kind of toxic in that period of their life. And I think there's a period of CT's life where he was just toxic, where he was just negative. He would be having a conversation and he would bring the conversation down or he would, he would behave in a way that was just, that would just demean somebody or, um, make people feel uncomfortable and he would do it quite often. So to that end, I think he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And obviously one of those people was Landon. Um, but I can't speak to specifics about, cause I'm sure CT and Landon had interactions that I wasn't there for, but my personal relationship with Landon. And again, I haven't seen Landon in 10 years to be honest with you, or however long it's been. It's been years. I don't know how many years. Um, but Landon was like one of those salt of the earth guys, as far as I knew. And genuine, not 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 just for camera, not just for just like, hey, I'm doing this for camera. I want to look good because there's are there are those people who are like, I want to show my best face to camera, and then you know, but you know behind the, the scenes they're a scumbag. Um, <laughs> you uh, you really got a sense that that Landon was doing it for all the right reasons. Um, and if I, you know, I just I I, I feel like he he should have stuck around longer and done more because he'd always be a value add. Um, morally, right? Because I feel, I feel like yeah. a lot of stuff that happens on these shows with people screwing each other over and backstabbing and all that behavior, it leaves a lot of these cast members morally bankrupt, bro. It really does. Mm, and yeah, that, no. like Landon can infuse some some equity back into that that uh, that part of the that part of the show. I think it was, and I always bring up this point as well. I brought up to him in particular. I always, it's kind of crazy now seeing with um, both, obviously Landon's impact that he made. He did four shows and he won three out of the four. And the one that he didn't win was his best year of that season performing wise was dual two. He lost the final elimination. Um, yeah, that's, the, that's the elimination where they were injured. I mean, they, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. The fascinating point that I want to bring up, and I brought this up to him as well, is that in between that period of time, he had his run, obviously, and then that was kind of like the beginning of uh, Johnny's run and evolution. And between those time periods, like obviously Johnny uh, won the island, Landon does Duel 2, Johnny wins the Ruins, and then Landon wins Fresh Me 2 right after and then never comes back again. In between those four season stretch, they never crossed paths and did a show with each other. So that's what's kind of fascinating to me is that yeah. those two guys, which are pretty much seen as like either, I mean, obviously CT is in the mix as well, but consensus wise, Johnny, CT, and Landon are pretty much what most would consider the top three uh, figures in the history of the show. And um, it's kind of crazy that two out of those three have never crossed paths. So. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I think, uh, you know, when I spoke earlier about the casting process, look, they have their own recipe, right? Buna Murray, they do what they do. They've been doing it for 25 years or however long it's been, and, it, you know, they have a, a winning recipe, so you can't fault them for it. It is interesting to kind of watch and see how how those pieces kind of come together. Um, 
And even when we talk about regular sports, right, you talk about the end of one era being another, like, was it the end of the Tom Brady era, the beginning of the Patrick Mahomes era? And then they, they ended up crossing paths and, you know, how that would have worked. And, and uh, so I feel like, you know, they call it the fifth sport for a reason. And, and you can analyze it any way you want. But, um, you know, I, I honestly believe that as, as good as Johnny is and was, whatever, um, physically, no, he was never the specimen that Landon and, and CT were in terms of just speed, size, and strength ratios. There just wasn't – I mean, those guys could do it all. Um, so, but Johnny, Johnny, was, Johnny was a better competitor. Like he – I mean, way, the way he did the island and screwed people, you know, he's a, he's a game player. So part of that was part of his strength. I mean, he was a – uh, what is it, like an avatar on a video game. You know, he had like size, speed, strength, gamesmanship, you know. He'd be a 10 in the gamesmanship category. So – it's part of it. <laughs> but uh, thanks again for hopping on here today. Uh, I had a pleasure chatting with you, and I feel like we knocked out a, a bunch of points that maybe uh, people had questions or concerns about over the years. And, um, you know, I had a fun time chatting with you, man. I've been wanting to do this for quite some time. I'm glad we were able to uh, do it. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me on. And uh, hopefully we'll get to do this again in the future. Uh, I've got, like I said, I've got a bunch of projects coming up, um, stuff that uh, hopefully we can get involved with, I can get you involved with. It'll be a... It'll be an interesting 2021, so uh, thanks for having me on, man, and I look forward to, to great things in the future. All right, man, I'll uh, link you this one when it's up.